Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 35, 1 Samuel chapter 21. Well, the last time we were together, we began a section of the Bible that deals with David's escape from the now paranoid and homicidal King Saul. And this is a a major turning point in redemption history. As up to now, David has been part of King Saul's government administration, even of his inner court. But from this point forward, the two men will become mortal enemies. And it's from this platform that David will complete his unlikely rise to the throne of Israel as God's anointed earthly king. Let's reread all of 1 Samuel chapter 12 to get our bearings. So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, uh, rather 21. Sorry, 1 Samuel 21, uh, which is page 322 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 21. So David got up and left, and Jonathan went back to the city. Now David went to see Ahimelech, the Kohen, the king, in Nob. Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the Kohen, The king has sent me on a mission, told me not to let anyone know its purpose or what I've been ordered to do. I've arranged a place where the guards are to meet me. Now, what do you have on hand? If you have... Excuse me, I lost my place. Okay. Now, what do you have on hand? If you have, if you can spare five loaves of bread, give them to me, or whatever there is. And the priest answered David, "I don't have any regular bread. However, there is consecrated bread, but only if the guards have abstained from women." And David answered the Cohen, "Of course, women have been kept away from us, as on previous campaigns. Whenever I go out on the campaign, the men's gear is clean." Even if it's an ordinary trip, how much more than today when they will be putting something consecrated in their packs? So the priest gave him consecrated bread because there was no bread there other than the showbread that had been removed from uh, before Adonai to be replaced by freshly baked bread on the day the old bread was removed. One of the servants of Saul happened to be there that day, detained before Adonai. His name was Dweg the Edomi, or Doeg the Edomite, the head of Saul's shepherds. And David said to Ahimelech, Perhaps you have here with you a spear or a sword. I brought neither my sword nor my other weapons because the king's mission was urgent. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, Goliath the Philistine, you killed in the Elah Valley, is over there behind the ritual vest, wrapped in a cloth. If you want it, take it. It's the only one here. And David said, there's nothing like it. Give it to me. The same day, David took flight from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. The servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, king of the land? Weren't they dancing and singing to each other? Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands? Well, these remarks were not lost on David, and he became very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. 
So as they were watching, he changed his behavior. He acted like a madman when they had hold of him, scratching marks on the doors of the city gate, drooling down his beard. And Akish said to his servants, Here, you see this man is Mashuga. Why bring him to me? Am I short of Mashugaim? Am I short of crazy people? Is that why you brought this one to go crazy on me? Must I have this one in my house? David has fled to Nob, where there was some type of a sanctuary to Jehovah in operation. His stay was probably no more than a day. Nob was located not far from Gibeah. Here's Gibeah on the map. Here's Nob. Now, there's a lot of conjecture as to Nob's precise location, but more and more, biblical archaeologists and Bible scholars are pretty comfortable now that Nob was probably located on what is referred to in modern times as Mount Scopus that overlooks Jerusalem. For those who've been to Israel, you know that this is just a brief walk, a few hundred yards as a matter of fact, from Mount Scopus to the walls of the Temple Mount. Now there's an assumption that David had comrades accompanying him because he told the high priest at Nob that they were sent on ahead, which is why he appeared to the high priest to be traveling alone, worried the high priest. In fact, in the New Testament gospel accounts that mention this incident, there seems to have been a Jewish tradition that indeed there were some men with David. However, there's nothing here that would indicate that David was truthful with the high priest, at least in that regard. In reality, David's entire encounter with Ahimelech, the high priest of Nob, was filled with deception and deceit. And and pretty soon, it was going to result in the unintended consequence of the extermination of every person associated with that Nob sanctuary. Now, it seems highly doubtful to me that as skillfully as David and Jonathan had worked to uncover whether or not there was a royal plot to kill David, And then a plan was devised, just in case it was necessary for for David to stealthily slip away from Saul, that in a matter of hours, he would suddenly have a contingent of men attached to him as he hastily retreated the short distance from from, uh, Gibeah to Nob. Well, verses 2, 3, and 4 seem to indicate that David's only purpose to escape first to Nob was so he could pick up some food and a weapon for a longer journey. Since David was a member of King Saul's court and privy to how the king operated and and who he tended to confide in, he undoubtedly knew that Ahimelech and and, and the priests at Nob had no idea that Saul intended to kill David, or that David was in the process of running away. Thus, Ahimelech was merely a naive dupe who David used to provision himself. 
Now let's pause a moment to review the political and religious climate of Israel at this time because our understanding of David's actions and the responses of those he'd come into contact with are dependent on our knowledge of those circumstances. First, Israel was not a sovereign nation just yet. King Saul tried to build the group of 12 tribes into a unified country, but he hadn't succeeded. There were essentially two primary tribal coalitions of Israelites who formed the the Hebrew people in this era. And those two coalitions coalitions were in opposition to one another. One coalition consisted of those tribes located in the central and northern area of Canaan, led by the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. The other coalition consisted of the tribes located in the southern part of Canaan, led by Judah. David was of the tribe of Judah. Second, the Philistines were very active and constantly a thorn in Saul's side. But there were other enemies present as well. Moab was an enemy and had even captured some amount of territory in the area that at one time was controlled by Reuben and Gad on the, on the east side of the Jordan River. Third, the all-important Levitical priesthood was fractured. There were at least two high priests in existence and therefore at least two sets of common priests, each set loyal to the sanctuary overseen by their high priest. The high priest and his common priests at Nob were probably seen as the most legitimate and authoritative at this time. See, Ahimelech Ahimelech was a descendant of Eli, Eli, the high priest that had raised Samuel when he was a child. So Samuel would have legitimized Ahimelech since Ahimelech was descended from his mentor, Eli. Now fourth, the... um, hmm. The first sanctuary location of the Levitical priesthood when Joshua first led Israel across the Jordan was at Shiloh. Shiloh. But the wilderness tabernacle that existed there for decades had become a ramshackle and it was abandoned. The site was destroyed. The priesthood left the area. Now, although we're not explicitly told so, since here in 1 Samuel 21 we find the great-grandson of Eli who had presided at Shiloh he was operating as the high priest at Nob, then we can reasonably assume that those priests of Shiloh hadn't died out, but rather they had migrated to Nob to resume operations. A fifth and perhaps most important, the Lord God had abandoned King Saul. King Saul was devoid of Jehovah's presence or even his influence or at least an influence in a positive sense. This led to Saul's current state of irrationality, bitterness, 
paranoia and downright hatred towards David. Further, Saul was, from a spiritual perspective, no longer the legitimate king over God's people. And all that was left was for earthly political reality to catch up to that fact. Saul was now a full-fledged enemy of God. He had no intention of relinquishing the throne given to him by the Lord. Nor did he intend to willingly turn it over to the man that the Lord had chosen as his successor, David. The king of Israel would fight to the death to defend what he saw as his, despite knowing deep down he had no chance to succeed. Now with that in mind, let's continue. David approaches Ahimelech at Nob. He asks for food and a weapon. Now the only food available was the showbread that had just been retired from his place in the sanctuary. See, the Torah law was that each Sabbath, 12 loaves of this specially made bread were to be placed before the Lord on the table of showbread that was located in the front chamber of the sanctuary tent. The 12 loaves that had been on display there for the past week were to be removed and then eaten by the priests and Levites at the sanctuary location. Not necessarily, not necessarily inside the tent, but, but next to it. Ahimelech offered to give five of those 12 loaves of this just retired showbread to David and to his phantom men. Well, by all accounts, this was a serious violation of the law that stated that only the priests could eat this consecrated bread and they could only eat it there. Now, I don't know if this fact especially bothered David or the priests that know, but it certainly made an impact on future generations. In fact, this incident became so infamous that over a thousand years later, it was still remembered by Jewish society. Turn your Bibles to Mark 2. Mark 2. Mark chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 23. You'll remember this. 1265 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. On Shabbat, Yeshua was passing through some wheat fields. And as they went along, his Talmudim, his disciples, began picking heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they violating Shabbat? And he said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he and those with him were hungry and needed food? He entered the house of God with Eviatar, who was Kohen Gadol, high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is forbidden for anyone to eat but the priests, and even gave some to his companions. And then he said to him, Shabbat was made for mankind, not mankind for the Shabbat. So the Son of Man is Lord even of Shabbat. 
Here we find no less than Messiah Yeshua recalling this matter of David taking the holy portion of bread from the sanctuary and eating it. By the way, the name, you may have Abiathar, alright, or one of that in there, that was Ahimelech's father. That was the family line, okay? That Jesus used this incident with David in the context of a Sabbath incident that he was currently embroiled in makes me think that, at least in Jewish tradition, the event that we're reading about here concerning David in 1 Samuel actually took place on the Sabbath. On the very day the showbread was being replaced with 12 fresh loaves. Which also means that David was fleeing on the Sabbath. Which I think is is probable. Now it's not coincidental that we have such similarity and interconnectedness with David as the early shadow of the Messiah and then along with presumably some of his followers they were fleeing from the anti-king Shaul on the Sabbath. Then we have connected with that Jesus 1,000 years later recalling this incident and he's correlating it to the Sabbath controversy he's having with the Pharisees. And then add to that the prophecy of Matthew 24 concerning that even later in, 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 in an end times appearance of the anti-king and anti-Christ we're going to see that God followers are told to escape from Judah to the hills and they're to pray that this event doesn't occur in winter or on the Sabbath. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And we're going to read verses 20, uh, let's see, 15 to 21. 15 to 21. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion. That will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. If someone is on the roof, he mustn't go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone's in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not have to escape in winter or on Shabbat. For there will be trouble then worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now. There will be nothing like it again. What's the problem of escaping to the hills on the Sabbath? It's a violation of God's command to do no work and to not start a journey on the Sabbath. So even running 
to escape the Antichrist will have a measure of sin involved if it must be done on the Sabbath. Now I've taught you for years that in order to understand the New Testament beyond a surface level or to even understand it as it was really always intended, we first need the foundation of the Old Testament firmly affixed in our minds. And that the Old Testament and the New Testament are simply one unified Bible. That Christianity has artificially and with tragic consequences separated into two sections. One section that's been declared as dead and gone thus replaced by another newer section. In fact, both testaments are needed. They're fully intertwined. Here's a good place to demonstrate that fact. Turn your Bibles now just a few pages back to Matthew chapter 12. Now in this chapter, this same account that we're looking at, the issue with the Sabbath grain, is also recounted. In fact, This incident with Christ plucking grain on the Sabbath is in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of them with a slightly different emphasis. So, let's read Matthew 12, 1 through 6. On Shabbat, during that time, Yeshua was walking through some wheat fields. His Disciples were hungry, so they began picking heads of grain and eating them. And on seeing this, the Pharisees said to him, Look, your disciples are violating the Sabbath. But he said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he uh, and those with him were hungry? He entered the house of God, he ate the bread of the presence, which was prohibited both to him and to his companions. It's permitted only to the priests. Or haven't you read in the Torah that on Sabbath the priests profane the Sabbath? And yet they're blameless. I tell you that this is the place that that uh, I tell you there is in this place something greater than the temple. Now, I'm not going to dwell here long, but I'd like to hopefully increase your understanding of what's happening in this story of Christ and his disciples plucking grain on Sabbath by incorporating the actual context of the story as told in 1 Samuel. The primary question before us is this. Why is the story of David taking showbread from Nob pertinent and representative of Yeshua and his disciples plucking and eating grain from a field nowhere near the temple on the Sabbath? What makes those intertwine? I'd like to offer that at least part of that answer is contained in a rather cryptic statement of Yeshua that we just read in verse 5. I'll just repeat it to you. In verse 5 he says, Or haven't you read in the Torah that on the Sabbath the priest profanes the Sabbath and yet is blameless? What a strange statement. That ever hit you before? What a strange thing to say. Here we have Yeshua saying that according to the Torah, on Shabbat the priests profane the Sabbath. 
and even more that somehow at some level they're considered blameless, presumably by God. And this is also in some way parallel to what happened at Nob when Ahimelech gave David the showbread. See, the modern Christian explanation for this is that Yeshua was chastising the Pharisees and others about their traditions that had resulted in the priesthood profaning the Sabbath. But that's not what's said. Further, Yeshua says that the instructions for the priests to profane the Sabbath actually comes from the Torah. Hmm. This is not about tradition. The issue is this. The most fundamental principle of Sabbath is that it's to be a day of rest for all. It is to both commemorate and to mimic the conclusion of creation and the celebration of which is also a sign that those who observe the Sabbath are God's people. No normal work is to be done. No fire is to be kindled. No food gathered or prepared. And yet, the priests are to go to work as normal at the temple, light the altar fire, slaughter animals, and ritually offer them to the Lord. Then the Levites are to come along and clean up the mess. The showbread is replaced. The priests sit and eat the prior week's fare. All this and more occurs at the temple, on the Sabbath, and is ordered by the Lord in the Torah law. Essentially, we have a conflict. And Christ acknowledges as much. God on the one hand orders that no one is to do normal work on the Sabbath or it's a sin and thus profanes the Sabbath. But on the other hand, the Levitical priesthood is ordered by God to do their normal work so that it honors the Sabbath. From another perspective, the priests are in a sense violating Torah, committing a sin, in order that the lay people of Israel would benefit by having their sins atoned for and their relationship with Jehovah affirmed. The sacrifices on Sabbath, by the way, were national, communal sacrifices for the Israelites as a people group. Let me say this another way. The priests were demonstrating mercy by continuing their normal work on the Sabbath and thus sinning right out of the mouth of Messiah. Because God demanded sacrifice on the Sabbath day on behalf of the people so that they could be at peace with God. This is why Christ could say that although the priests profaned the Sabbath, they are at some level held blameless because they were ordered to do it. 
mercy trumped the strictest adherence to the letter of the law when two laws collided. Thus the analogy between what Christ was doing by allowing his hungry disciples to pluck grain, work, on the Sabbath, and what the high priest at Nob did by giving David the sanctified showbread, they're both appropriate. David was a man in need of food. He was fleeing a murderer. He was hungry. Presumably also those phantom men that were with him were hungry. The high priest Ahimelech showed David mercy. And he profaned the Sabbath by giving David the showbread that was reserved only for the priests. And yet, Christ would say that what Ahimelech did was the better thing to do. See, this is essentially a Carl Vomer argument. Light versus heavy. That Yeshua was offering to the Pharisees who were confronting him. It is the argument that he is making that some laws of God carry more weight than other laws. And it was inevitable that regularly God's laws would collide and a worshiper would have to choose which one to obey, which one to violate when that situation arose. For instance, the Torah makes it clear that laws concerning the preservation of innocent life carry more weight than laws of ritual observance. Thus, if on the Sabbath one sees an animal has fallen into a hole, sees a human in distress, it's incumbent upon the one who discovers the problem to take whatever measures are needed to save them, no matter how much work or how much travel is required. We saw this same concept in the story of the Good Samaritan. When a priest wouldn't help a man in dire need that the priest feared because the priest, a priest feared the man might be dead, or, or maybe even die in his care, he was so bad off, and thus the priest would become defiled with this death. And this is true, according to Torah law. But a detested Samaritan did help the man without thought of personal defilement because the life and well-being of that injured man was more important than the possibility of his becoming contaminated with the very serious ritual impurity of death. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, although in all their self-righteousness they punctiliously sought to follow the letter of the Torah law, they also violated the spirit of the law when they ignored human need if they thought it might somehow cause them to sin or become unclean. They ignored the greatest commandment, the foundational commandment upon which all the other commandments rest. To love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, heart, and strength, and to love thy neighbor, our fellow man, as thyself. 
You see, it's because of our fallen nature and the fallen nature of the world in which we exist that mankind is caught on the horns of a dilemma. It was never supposed to be like this. Nothing operates as it should because sin has become pervasive. God did not create a faulty creation. Mankind, beginning with Adam, perverted it. How often we'll compliment someone with a compliment that isn't necessarily true. But it's the graceful and merciful thing to do. Doctors, policemen, emergency workers, others are needed to work on the Sabbath for the good of us all. We constantly have to choose between obeying one law of God over another even though we may not consciously think about it. In the prior lesson, I offered the example of Corey Ten Boom who hid Jews from Nazis in World War II. When she was asked about the whereabouts of these Jews that she was hiding, she blatantly lied. She defied her government by hiding Jewish fugitives. She broke the civil law in what she was doing. Yet, she saved innocent life. If we sin in the name of sinning for a good reason or a better thing, is it no longer sin in God's eyes? The answer is that it is indeed still sin. But our showing God's mercy to another by knowingly being willing to take a sin upon our shoulders is the better thing to do. And in fact, it's expected of us by the Father. And Christ spoke of it in this story of plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. This impossible situation is why we need Messiah. This is also why no man can claim to be sinless even though he might also claim to follow the letter of the Torah law to perfection. Even the priests, according to Yeshua, had to in one sense break the law against working on the Sabbath in order to obey the law to sacrifice on the Sabbath on behalf of the people. The corrupted state of the physical world that is our realm is such that obeying the spirit of the law will necessarily at times conflict with obedience to the letter of the law. It's going to happen. The good news is that Messiah has come. And the sins that we did and do and will commit, even in love and mercy, are paid for by Him. But another part of the good news is that this impossible conundrum will not always be so. When Messiah returns and His kingdom is fully established, this awful choice isn't going to confront us anymore. 
The law will still operate. The temple will again stand. But the conflict between laws won't occur because the inherent corruption of the world and everything and everyone in it will have been removed from Satan's authority and placed under Messiah's. And then after the millennium, when the current heavens and earth pass away and new ones are brought about, sin itself won't even exist any longer. All will be as God intended from the beginning. Let's get back to Samuel 21. In verse 8, as David was conversing with Ahimelech, very nearby skulked a fellow named Dweg. Dweg was apparently King Saul's chief henchman. He was a foreigner. He was an Edomite. He wasn't a Hebrew. Fittingly, the ungodly king of Israel had chosen this uncircumcised pagan to be his eyes and ears and to be in charge of his bodyguards and apparently also his flocks. Now that David had food, he also needed a weapon. So he asks the priest at Nob if perhaps there was one at the encampment. What an odd thing. Why would David think there would be a weapon at the sanctuary? Interestingly, it turned out that it was the sword of Goliath that was being stored in the sanctuary. And so Ahimelech, knowing that it was David who took the sword from Goliath in the first place, figured who better to turn it over to than David. But this also lends further credence, watch this, to Nob being located on what is now called Mount Scopus. Listen to what we read about the whereabouts of Goliath's sword in an earlier chapter of 1 Samuel. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. This is in 1 Samuel 17, 54. It says this, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put the armor of the Philistine in his tent. Notice that David took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem, but it also says that he put the armor of Goliath in his tent. Now, this translation has always been dubious. Many scholars dispute it. The his or his own, in reference to the tent, is not actually present in those words. It was, you see, it was David's tent that it was assumed by the translators. Probably better would be that David took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and put Goliath's armor in the tent. But of course, what tent would that be referring to? Well, it's obvious. The tent sanctuary at Nob, located just a few hundred yards from the city gates of Jerusalem. David thought to ask for a weapon at a very unlikely place to find one, sanctuary to Jehovah, because he himself had brought that sword there only a few years earlier. And he wondered if it might still be present. The reason 
for his fleeing first to Nob of all unlikely places is now becoming clear. In asking for his prized sword to be returned to him, David continues in his deceit. And he says that the reason he needs it is because he had to leave in a hurry as the king's mission was so terribly urgent. Well, in verse 10, Ahimelech tells David that the sword is wrapped in a cloth and hidden behind the ritual vest. What those words actually say is that Goliath's sword was wrapped in a simla and hidden behind an ephod. A simla was the everyday dress worn by a commoner, a layperson. It was the simple, humble garment of a typical poor Hebrew person, a shepherd, a craftsman, a field worker. Overlaying that same law was an ephod, which can be the undergarment of a priest. At first, the term ephod referred to a special piece of the high priest's uniform. Later, it came to mean an undergarment or even a middle garment that all priests wore. So it's hard to know here exactly which is being referred to. Well, bread and sword in hand... David continues in his flight. Now he goes to the city of Gath. Now the irony is thick. Think about this. David, the slayer of Goliath, carries Goliath's unique sword with him to Goliath's hometown in hopes of being protected of all people by the Philistines. One can only wonder why David would choose such a risky tactic. About 23 miles southwest of Nob, the king of Gath, Achish, is shocked to see David standing there before him. Achish is no fool. And he instantly recognizes David. I mean, the sword of Goliath couldn't help his disguise very much. And he says, isn't this David, the king of the land? Akish knew full well that David wasn't the king of Israel. His soldiers had been fighting against King Saul for years. Rather, this was a kind of a mocking as he looked upon this great warrior of whom the women sang songs. But now he was all disheveled, pretty well out of his comfort zone. One can only imagine what was going through the king of Gath's mind. Whatever would possess David to show up here Well, he had to be wary and suspicious and not just a little bit worried. No doubt David was at first hoping hoping to be taken in as a defector from Saul's government. Perhaps Achish would see him as a valuable tool to use against Saul. After all, the ancient parable that the enemy of my enemy is my friend wouldn't have been lost on the man of uh, a man like Achish. But it wasn't to be. The king of Gath's demeanor and tone told David uh, he'd miscalculated in coming here. So David, always quick on his feet, began to act like a madman. He scratched his nails on on the door. He started drooling down his beard. Why didn't the king simply have David killed at this point? What difference did it make whether David was insane? 
Did the king spare him out of mercy for his mental state? Hardly. In those times, madness was viewed through the lens of superstition. Just as it was that King Saul's own inner court saw Saul's fits of rage and irrationality as a, as a kind of madness and concluded that since madness is caused by evil spirits, they needed the mysterious antidote of music to counteract it. So for Achish to have a madman in his presence or to kill him would cause evil spirits to bedevil him or his city. So the king of Gath gets upset with the men who brought David to, this, to his palace and he wants to know why they do such a thing. He even ridicules them by asking if their weak little minds thought that perhaps the king just didn't have enough mashugaim, crazy people running around the place. So they brought him another one. Well, David's ploy worked. He managed to save himself. But we're going to find out in the next chapter that God's plan was that David wasn't supposed to leave his country. He wasn't supposed to seek a foreign nation for protection. Rather, he was supposed to trust the Lord for his safety. Perhaps, perhaps, with Goliath's sword on his hip, as a reminder, David would recall that amazing day in the Elah Valley not so long ago when a smallish shepherd, armed with nothing but a sling and facing impossible odds, shouted to that enormous Philistine warrior who stood towering over him, You're coming at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I'm coming at you in the name of Adonai Svaot, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have challenged. The Lord wasn't going to allow his anointed king to die before his time. We'll take up 1 Samuel chapter 22 next time.